Welcome. I think we've got some football recruits here. Is that correct? Yeah, who's all here just uh, checking out Sterling today for the first time? All right, welcome. Let's give them a warm welcome. That's good. I knew uh, some of you were going to be in the house today, so when I was preparing, I like what, what would resonate on all parts of our campus? And uh, got to thinking, how many, there was a movie that came out a while ago now, the movie was 300. Uh, does anybody know that movie? I'm not making any commentary on the movie itself, but it's about the 300 Spartans that fought the battle at the Mopoli Pass that eventually they all died. Any, anybody familiar with that story? Okay. Much like most movies that come out of Hollywood, there's a lot of inaccuracies in there. Okay, and I, I started as a history teacher. I love history. And it's important for us to get history right. All right, it's important for us to know what happened. So that one, we learn from it. Two, we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. And, and three, that we become, we appreciate where we've come from and, and all the things that have happened to bring us to this place in this world. Let me, let me correct a few things. The 300, we talk about the 300. It was actually an army of about six to 7,000 men. Not 300. And they were tasked with King Leonidas to, to stop the Persians. It was a Greek army. Once Xerxes had figured out a way around, and it was obvious that this battle was going to be lost sooner or later, the king dismissed about 6,000 soldiers, told them to go back home so they wouldn't get killed. And there were 1,000 men left with him. This is kind of one of the fun parts of history. All right, there were 300 Spartans, and there were 700 Thespians. Let me say that again. There were 300 Spartans, and there were 700 Thespians. Now, what do we asso associate Thespians with? They're actors today, right? How many of you actors knew that there were 700 of you at the Battle of Thermopylae standing in the gap? You know you were? Is that what you said? Well, it's not exactly true. All right, the, th the word thespian in terms of actor comes from a guy named Thespis, Thespis of Icaria. All right, he was the guy that Aristotle said was the very first actor of all time, the first person that had a primary character and wasn't part of a chorus. So that's where we get our little t thespian, that means actor today. Um, Thespii was actually a city. And so the men of Thespiae were thespians. So you've had your history lesson for today, but for all of those who consider yourselves thespian, next time somebody talks about the 300 Spartans that were there, you can say, yeah, but there were 700 of us thespians, right? And you, you can get the full story later. So we've got, we've got these 300, they stand in the gap. This keeps falling, that's okay. Um, we know the story. Here's the crazy thing. So I don't know what was, you know, probably eight, ten years ago, they make the th movie 300. In 1962, there was actually another movie made called The 300 that was about the same story. We've got the 300 that happened at Thermopylae, but what you don't know is that the original 300 happened 600 years earlier. And here's the good news about that 300. They won. 
They didn't die. They won. And so today I want to talk to you about that 300 and how they came to be and who their leader was. In the story, we're going to learn two things about God, two things about us, and one, one thing about life. Let me set the stage for you. So if you go and you, if you know the story in, in Judges 6, what was going on at that time is that the Israelites were in the land, but they were getting persecuted. The Midianites were taking all their stuff. They were, they were showing up, and there would be these bands of soldiers. What would happen is you'd work your farm, you'd get all your food, and the Midianites would show up, and they'd take all your stuff. And so you had to farm in secret. You had to harvest in secret. You had to thresh your grain in secret. And so if we want to set the stage again for, for the thespians in the audience, we're going to set the scene a little bit. If I don't drop my mic here. I want you to imagine a wine press. A big hole in the ground where you could pour grapes into and you could walk around and press out the wine. In the wine press, there's a guy, but he's not pressing the grapes. What he is doing is he is trying to thresh the wheat. To do this, you throw it up in the air, you, 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 you use the fork, you throw it up, and as the wheat breaks, the chaff gets blown away by the winds, and the grain kernels fall to the ground. Normally, you do it out in the open where there's lots of wind. But here's what would happen. If you were doing it in a normal, out on the threshing floor where there would be lots of wind, the Midianites would sit up on a hill and they would watch you do all the work and you would throw the grain and the good stuff would fall and you would throw it and you'd work all day long, you'd bag it up and then here come the Midianites, they'd come down, they'd take everything you worked for for that day and they'd steal it. And so you have to figure out how to do this in secret. And so this guy named Gideon, he has an idea. He goes to a wine press and the grapes aren't ripe yet so nobody would think to look in a wine press. And he's hiding in the wine press, and he's throwing the grain up. The problem is, how much wind is there when you're in a big hole? And so he throws it up, and just a little bit puffs above the top, and a little chaff goes away. The rest comes down on his head. And all day, he's trying to throw this up as high as he can, but he can't throw it too high, because he doesn't want the Midians to see that he Midianites to see that he has this wheat. And so he's there all day throwing it up, and it's coming down, and he's coated head to toe in chaff and dust and dirt and he's sweaty and he looks down at the bottom and there's so much stuff there he can't even see the grain kernels and covered in dust and dirt and sweat and frustrated and scared we meet him for the very first time there's the scene he looks up on the edge and there's a guy sitting there or somebody, somebody sitting there, and the man looks at him, and the man says the craziest thing. He looks at this kid who we find out later is the least in his family, and his family's the least in their clan, and their clan is the least in their tribe. He looks down at him, covered in dirt and dust, and he says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. If I'm Gideon, I'm like, where, you know, who you? I'm hiding, getting wheat in my hair, scared that they're going to take anything. Who in the world are you talking to? Here's the first thing I want you to learn about God today. The Bible is clear. God does not look at our outward appearance when he calls us. 
God does not look at our outward appearance when he sets a plan in place. You can look at David when it came time to anoint a king. David's own father brought every other son out because he didn't think David was good enough. And God says, no, that's, that's the one for me. Sometimes you look in the mirror and you have no, no concept of how God could use you. You have no, no thought of what could happen, how big your life could be. One of the things that I, I battle every year as we bring in new students is a lot of them have this mindset that life is just going to be like it was for their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. They don't have a concept of having a marriage that lasts. They don't believe necessarily that they can be a great father. And here I'm here to tell you today, if God can look at this scrawny kid in a hole covered in dust and say, you're a mighty warrior. He can look at you and say, you're a great father someday. You're going to be a phenomenal husband someday. You're a strong warrior. You just do not know it yet. God's not looking at what's on the outside. He knows what's in here. Here's the second thing about God we learned from this. It's okay to ask God hard questions. Here's Gideon's response. He says, but sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? There's his first question. If, if God is really here, oh, I hear it from the priest. I hear it from people. If God is with us, why am I hiding in a stupid hole? If God is with us, why don't we have food on the table? If God is with us, why is this going on? Number two, if God is with us, where's all the wonders our fathers told us about? Where's all those miracles? Oh, yeah, my grandpa told me about this pillar of fire. My, my grandpa told me about how, you know, his grandpa saw the Red Sea part. That's all great. Why doesn't God do that stuff now? Those questions familiar to any of you? Why didn't God hear my, heal my mom? Why did God let my best friend die in a car accident? Why did God allow this? Why didn't God do the miracle? I've heard of people. I go to church and people say, yeah, this person was healed. Why wasn't this person healed? Those are real fair questions. And I'm going to tell you today, God's okay with those questions. We don't have a God who's scared of questions we may ask. The Bible is full of hard questions. David says, look, I'm going through this stuff. God, where are you? Everywhere I look, I can't find you. Where did you go? And David also comes back later and says, hey, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't feel e fear evil, for God is with me. And Gideon poses these questions. He, he says, now God's abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. Here's the funny thing. God doesn't answer him. God's okay with us asking questions. But I'm going to tell you straight up, sometimes God will hear our questions, but he'll choose not to answer at the moment. I've learned some of those reasons as I got older. I have three boys. 
Now, I know none of you were ever like this, but we had kids who, especially when they were about 3 o'clock, don't touch the stove. Why? Don't run into the street. Why? Don't, don't talk back to your mom. Why? Most of those questions I didn't feel I always had to answer. Don't come in the bedroom when the door is locked. Why? I ain't telling you. I don't need to explain that one. That's beyond where they're, where they're at. That's the best laugh I got all, all year right there. <laughs> no matter what you hear, I better stop right there. No. Sorry, honey. There's questions God does not answer. All right? Sometimes we don't need to know. Sometimes there's things beyond our pay grade. Sometimes there's things that God is doing, and this side of heaven we will never know. Sometimes there's more than one answer. Sometimes God is doing, and I believe all the time, multiple things. And for Gideon, it was more important God listened and God heard the question, but it was more important the next steps that Gideon was going to take. And when he took those steps, he would learn something far more important than the answer to his question. He was going to learn that no matter what the question was, God was always with him. That no matter what the question was, God was working and God was going to do something if he was faithful. One thing I've learned, I need to trust what I know about God. I need to trust the love I've experienced. I need to trust the strength and the power that I've experienced. And I need to live in that knowledge, not live in the uncertainties of things I haven't yet learned about God. I don't know completely how free will and destination work together. I don't think I ever will. But I can't let that lack of knowledge keep me from coming up to the foot of the cross and understanding that I do know my sins are forgiven. I will never know completely exactly how the Holy Spirit is at work in today's world. But when my brother is killed in a car accident, I do know the Holy Spirit comforted him. And so we have to choose to live in what we know about God, not what we're still learning. Now let's learn a couple things about Gideon. We find out as we go through the story, Gideon was the weakest or the lowest person in his family, and his family was the weakest, lowest clan of all the clans in one of the weakest and smallest tribes. If you're picking dodgeball teams for gym class, Gideon is getting picked last. All right? This is the guy who gets overlooked. This is the guy who, when something happens, the people, no, he wouldn't do that. He's not strong enough. He's not brave enough. Russell Moore wrote an article that I keep and I read every year. I think he wrote it in maybe 2002, maybe later than that. I forget the date, but this is what he says. 
he was talking, first of all, with the theologian Carl Henry. And he asked Carl Henry if he saw any hope in the coming generation, especially given, given some of the failings of church leadership that they were seeing. Carl Henry said this, of course there is hope for the next generation of evangelicals. But the leaders of the next generation might not be coming from the current evangelical establishment. They are actually probably still pagans. Then Russell Moore goes on and says this, the next Jonathan Edwards, if you don't know who that is, it's a great preacher, preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, led, led a revival. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the guy driving in front of you with a Darwin fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist right now. The next Billy Graham might be passed out drunk at a fraternity house right now. The next Charles Spurgeon might be making posters for a gay pride march right now. The next Mother Teresa might be managing an abortion clinic right now. And you better be kind to that atheist in front of you on the highway who just shot you an obscene gesture. He might be the one who evangelizes your grandchildren. If you go through the Bible... God doesn't choose the people who come through the religious establishment all the time. He chooses adulterers and murderers. He chooses people who nobody would expect. And he does something extraordinary with their life. Nobody would have looked and said, Gideon's the guy that's going to lead us to victory against the Midianites. Except God. And God says, that's the guy. Some of you sit in your rooms thinking, I'm never going to make it. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I don't come from the right family. I don't have enough money. I'm not talented enough. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. If God can take the lowest of the low, but the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. God can do something extraordinary with every one of us. It's interesting. You know, the church, when Paul was first converted, the church wasn't sure. This guy was a murderer. How in the world? People had to, uh, people had to vouch for him. And even Jesus, there's a really intriguing story in Mark 6. Jesus goes back home to all his friends and buddies and family, and he begins to teach and all of his friends and all of his people are amazed. But then they say this in Mark 6, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't he just the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters right over here? And they took offense at Jesus. People looked at Jesus. He's just the carpenter. He's, yeah, we know his brothers. We, Jesus is just one of them. We know his sisters. And Jesus said this, one of the most powerful verses for us to consider. Only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could do no miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed by their lack of faith. Here's something really intriguing for you to consider. Do you realize Jesus' hometown took away his power? That people who did not believe, people who did not know, 
looked at Jesus and said he can do nothing. And the Bible says because of that, Jesus could do no miracles there. How are you going to get out? Gideon had to break down. We're going to find out what Gideon did in just a minute here. But Gideon had to get out of his hometown. He had to get out of his place. And only then did God's power really show up in an amazing, amazing way. But I don't want anybody here to look at themselves and say, I'm the lowest of the low. I'm the least of the least. God can't use me. I'm telling you, God looks at you. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Covered in dirt, covered in dust, covered in wheat chaff. The Lord is with you. Here's the second thing we learn about Gideon. In order to finally fully be used by God, Gideon had to go tear down his altars and anything that threatened his soul allegiance to God. You see, his dad was a priest in town, and they had an altar to bow. They had an Asherah pole where they worshiped. Kind of funny, Gideon's scared. He's not brave yet. So in the middle of the night, he sneaks out of bed, and he crawls in, and he chops down the pole, and he knocks down the altar, and he builds a new altar. But that moment changed everything. You see, most of us have these altars. Most of us have these things we depend on. We depend on for our self-esteem. We depend on for our value. We depend on for our financial security. And sometimes if we're really going to experience the power of God, we've got to knock those things down. We've got to knock them down and build a new altar. We've got to take the things out that distract us, take the things out that are in our way, and then and only then, did Gideon turn into this warrior that nobody expected? That brings us to our lives right now. Let me finish the story. So Gideon goes out, he knocks it down, and something changes, and people begin to follow Gideon. And instead of being the single guy in a hole in the ground, Gideon goes out and he calls an army together. And this guy who was the lowest of the low, 32,000 men show up to be part of his army. How, how did this guy get 32,000 men to follow him? And you think, this is great. God's building this army. We want churches that are really big. We want groups that are huge. And we want to grow and grow and grow. And the bigger we get, the more powerful we're going to get. Except God kind of flips our thinking on edge sometimes. And Gideon, I can just imagine, he's like, I, I'm sure, he's like, look, we got 32,000. God, look, we recruited well, we got everybody here. And God says, that, that's too many. What do you mean that's too many? The numbers tell us there's probably about 415,000 soldiers they were going to go to war against. Do the, do the math. You've got 32,000, they have 415,000. Each guy's got to kill a lot of guys, right? And God says, that's too many. Okay, let's shrink it down. And so Gideon says, all right, some of you guys are here. I know you're being brave, but you're scared to death. You're nervous. If you're, you're scared, go ahead and go back home. And I think, uh, I think he thought, oh, we'd lose a few thousand. Most of the men go home. 
If memory serves me right, I think it was about 2,000 that are left. And he's like, okay, now we're down to 2,000. God, we just lost our, the majority of our guys. Maybe it was 12,000. I don't remember. Is this, this the army you want? God says, nope, it's still too many. Here's another test. Take them down to the river. They're tired. They've been working. You've been doing training. They're thirsty. Have them get a drink. Every man that stays alert, every man that brings water to his mouth, you keep. Anybody who's so thirsty, they just stick their face in the river, send them home. And I can just watch Gideon. You guys go home. And he's left with an army of 300 men. 300 versus 415,000. How do you go to battle like that? He goes back to a time when he was in a hole. <clears throat> the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The time when he put out a fleece and God did a miracle. The time when he cut down the pole. He goes back to a dream that somebody had. The Lord is with us. And 300 is enough. In the face of 415,000, if God is with you, 300 is enough. In the face of cancer... When God is with you, that's enough. In the face of depression and anxiety and suicide and hopelessness, when God is with you, that's enough. And they go into battle and God does this miracle and they defeat the enemy and freedom finally comes. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And because God is with you, and you, and you, something extraordinary is going to happen. Something powerful is going to happen. He sees far more than you are right now. And he wants to do something amazing. Let's pray. Lord, you took 300 men and did something that nobody believed possible. You took a little straggly kid in, in a hole in the ground covered in dirt and you saw something in him that nobody else did. You saw a murderer and saw the greatest missionary the world has ever known. You saw a little boy tending sheep and you saw a giant slayer. You saw a guy who had been taken captive in war and saw somebody who could tame lions. And Lord, in this arena, in this in this auditorium today, there are people who feel like they're covered in dust and dirt and shame and they feel useless and helpless. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, your Holy Spirit would speak these words to them. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And God, you would plant a seed of faith and do something extraordinary that nobody in this room could ever dream or imagine. We claim that, we pray that in Jesus' name.